So if this is your first time to RUF, welcome. Uh, my name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here, and um, we're just really glad to have you here um, if this is your first time, or if your second time, or if your 15th time. Um, what RUF is, uh, it's a place where we believe that the good news of the gospel, which is um, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, is news for us. And what, what this news says is that there is nobody that is so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. But also that there's no one who can be so good that they're beyond the need of God's grace. And so what that means is that all of us are in the same boat. Whether you've gone to church your whole life, whether this is like the first religious thing that you've ever come to, that all of us equally need the grace of God. And no one is too good for it. And you can't be good enough to earn it because it's grace. And so we're all in the same boat. Um, What we've been looking at this semester is the book of Revelation. Now, I know that um, Revelation can kind of give people the heebie-jeebies a little bit because it's been used to... um, come up with some like pretty weird predictions about the world and the end of the world. And um, here's the thing. The book Revelation, the word, like if you, the beginning of the, the first chapter, it says the apocalypsis. It's the Greek word that's used, the apocalypsis of John. Um, that word, you hear where we get you know, apocalypsis revelation, we get the word apocalypse, right? And we think, when we hear apocalypse, we think of like, the end of the world or the book of Eli or the walking dead or, you know, some like apocalyptic TV show that we're all obsessed with. Um, no one watches the walking dead anymore. I'm sorry. I do some, but anyway, um, the, uh, the thing, what, what that word actually means, the apocalypse in Greek means unveiled or revealed. And so when, when John begins this book as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, what he's he's not just announcing the title of the book he's announcing the topic of the book that the topic of the book is seeing more of who Jesus is it's Jesus unveiled and not just Jesus but the whole how the world really is and so we get this apocalyptic imagery all throughout the bible and we're about to run headlong into it in chapter 4 really the rest of the book like strap in cuz we're about to get into some like super crazy images but all of, pretty much all of these images that we're going to get, you have to remember John is writing to people who've just converted from Judaism to Christianity. And so they know their Old Testament. So so much of this imagery is actually from the Old Testament. You're going to see that tonight. Um, so let me, um, let me read this, and then, and then we'll pray. Revelation chapter 4. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
I told you guys we were going to get kind of weird. All right, here we go. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Richard Bauckham, he's a... um, He studied at Cambridge. He's a New Testament professor at the University of St. Andrews. He said this, The intent of the book of Revelation is to purge and refurbish the Christian's imagination. To purge and refurbish the Christian's imagination. This is what this image is going to do, I hope, for you tonight, if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I hope what this will do is give you a picture of what does the Bible claim the meaning of life is. It's a small topic. Okay. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks that we could be here together tonight. um, And we thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray that you would help us to study it now. Uh, These are, uh, this is a difficult passage and we need your help. And so we ask that you give it to us uh, by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Have you ever been somewhere that you like totally did not belong? This happened to me like three years ago. My dad, my dad loves to golf. He played golf in college. My brother loves to golf. Um, I like golf. I'm not good at golf, but I participate with, like, the family outings. And we did this big kind of, like, trip of a lifetime thing to Scotland, and we were going to go play all these courses in Scotland. And we went to the place where golf was invented, St. Andrews. And we are going to play St. Andrews. And, like, it's like a tourist event. It's like, when you – it's really scary. If you're not good at golf, like, you can hit really bad shots in golf. And so there's all these tourists there who are watching you tee off on the first hole just because they're curious because they're in St. Andrews and they want to see where golf was invented. Well, the other thing that's at St. Andrews is one of the most exclusive clubs in the world. It sits back um, behind the first tee, and it's called, tell me how like exclusive and British this sounds, the Royal and Ancient Club. Are you kidding me? A club called the Royal Nature Club? So we're looking at the, we get our picture in front of the Royal Nature Club. Like if you watch the British Open and like when, when they give the trophy, like it's in that clubhouse. And, but only like, I guess royal and ancient people get to go in there, or really rich people. And here's the thing. I'm super nervous about this first shot I'm going to hit in front of like hundreds of people and I'm stink at golf and I'm terrified and so I, I needed to go TT, as we would say at the trap house to the girls. And I look at my brother, I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom. There's nowhere to go. Like, we're out here in the middle of this golf course. And, he, and I was like, actually, dude, how awesome would it be if I went and peed in the Royal and Ancient Club? And he's like, there's no way you can get in there. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll just act like I belong there. I'll just act like I'm, like I'm supposed to be there. And, he, <laughs> and uh, so... That's my game plan. I'm just going to go in, act like I belong in the, like John Trapp from Tuscumbia, Alabama, belongs in the Royal and Ancient Club. 
So it's kind of like, you know, there's like a dude valeting cars. I'm like, hey, what's up? You know, and just like walking, walking past them. I'll walk into the front door. I'll walk past like the concierge guy who looks really stuffy and like really easily irritated. I walk past him and I'm walking confident, confident, confident. But now I don't know where I'm going. and I don't know where the bathroom is. And I have this like half second of hesitation that stuffy concierge guy immediately recognizes as a dumb American who's wandered into this room. And he's like, excuse me, sir, may I help you? <laughs> I'm like, um, I was just looking for the bathroom. And I'm trying to like act like, you know, this ignorant hick, which I kind of am. And he's like... Um, he's like, what are you doing in here? I was like, well, uh, my dad told me I could come in here to go to the bathroom. I acting like my dad's some important person. And he goes, he goes, who's your father? <laughs> and I didn't want to be like, um, Rusty Trap from Tuscumbia, Alabama. My dad's name actually is Rusty Trap. I didn't get that joke until I was like 16. Um, but I was like, <laughs> I'll be going now. And I just left and like, you know, figured it out. Um, Here's the thing. This picture that you have of John is he gets ushered into the most exclusive room in existence. The throne room of God. And here's the thing. He doesn't get brought in there to get shamed like I was at the Royal and Ancient Club. He's actually brought there because God's going to bless him and care for him. Okay, four points tonight. I got teased today because some guys at breakfast told me I'll only preach three-point sermons. So it's not going to be a long sermon, but I'm doing four points tonight. Here's the four points. Guys, mean guys who think I only preach three points. Point one, why we need this vision. Point two, what the vision shows. Point three is a surprise. And point four, so what? Okay, why we need this vision, what the vision shows. A surprise. And so what? So first, why we need this vision? Right, look, you've got to appreciate this vision. You have to understand John's situation. He's, in, he's a first century Christian. He's like, a, the, the Christians at that day were like a speck in Rome. Like 0.01% of the people in Rome. But they had a noticeable presence, noticeable enough that they were being severely persecuted. Some of them fed to lions, and some much worse. In fact, um, one of the first Christian martyrs that we have recorded is of John's brother. In Acts chapter 12, John's brother James. Remember Peter, James, and John? If you ever read Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. James is beheaded in Jerusalem. So here's John, his, brother, his brother's been beheaded. All the other disciples are dead at this point. He's an old man. Peter's been crucified upside down. Everyone, all of his friends are dead. And he's alone on an island because he's been sent there because he's a troublemaker to Rome. And he just got this vision of what are all these churches like that he's been working with. Do you remember this from, last, I guess, two weeks ago? The churches are sucking they're apathetic, they are sexually immoral, they are faithless, and like, John has to be sitting there, if I'm John sitting there on this island, I'm thinking, God, where are you? What are you doing? Is is this hopeless, what we're doing right now? And 
Look, maybe that's, maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you are wondering where God is in your life or in your friend's life who's suffering. And if you're a Christian, here's the thing. What I hope that you will see here is that the vision that God gives to his church who is suffering, you know, this is a letter that John sends to these churches that are messed up. What he sends to comfort them is, I'm on my throne. I am on my throne. And if you're not a Christian, first off, I'm so glad you're here. And I just appreciate you like giving this, this a chance to thank you. If you're not a Christian, um, I would suggest to you that this scene in Revelation 4, it's at the heart of the biblical claim of what the meaning of the world is. Because in this passage, you see, did you see it? Look at the very end. What did the, the elders say? That you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That everything is made, was made by God, and that he's on the throne. And if you're not a Christian, maybe you're wondering, is there anyone on the throne? Is there anyone ruling this stuff at all? Like, is there any meaning to this world? Or is, or is the, the meaning of this world just kind of what I make of it? So am I, am I on the throne? And can I rule? Or maybe, you're, maybe um, the question is, um, like, where did this stuff come from? Like, science, can, science is awesome. I love science. Pro-science. Science can answer a bunch of stuff. It, it, cannot, it cannot answer, like, what happened before the universe was made. Or, like, where the stuff that made the universe even came from. Because that's not observable. So, where did it come from? And what Revelation 4 is claiming is that it came from, it came from one who was see- seated on a throne. So... The question then is, is there any hope? Christian, is there hope? Non-Christian, is there hope? And here's the deal. Because all of us hope in something. All of us hope in something, and that hope is on the throne of our hearts. We all have a throne in our hearts, and our hope is on it. And we worship it because we're all worshipers. David Foster Wallace said this. Y'all know David Foster Wallace? He's an atheist. He wrote one of the 100 greatest books of the 20th century, according to Time Magazine. Um... Great thinker. He gives this commencement speech at Kenyon College that kind of went viral um, about 10 years ago. Did videos even go viral 10 years ago? I don't know, but apparently it did. He says this, There's no such thing as not worshiping. This is an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And so my question for you, the question I've been thinking about as I've been studying this text is what do we worship? What do you worship? What is the thing that is your hope that is enthroned in your life? I mean, the, ob- the kind of like obvious answers that we kind of run to if you, if you run in Christian circles and you hear someone talk about like, what do you worship? is like school, right? Like I, I, my, I put my, all my hope in like doing well in school or having good grades or having friends like me or being cool or having money. Some of, some of us, we put our hope in being right, or in being really religious and being really good at that. And those hopes, they actually cannot save you. 
Because here's the thing. We put those things on the, th- on the throne of our hearts and we try to make them love us, but instead they rule us. Listen to how David Foster Wallace describes it. If we worship money and things, if they are where you find real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million small deaths before your life ends. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're unconscious. It's that they are default settings. We were, it's ingrained in us that there's something in human beings that they put their hope in something and we worship it. That's what, that's what we do with the things that we worship. And so my question for you is what's on the throne of your heart? What's the thing that's enslaving you? Because, look, I think, here's my theory on myself and on y'all, is that underneath kind of like the external things that we like worship, like money or relationships or a girlfriend or whatever, underneath all that stuff is the thing that we, what we really want which is to be accepted and known and loved. To be at peace and satisfied. That's what we ache for. Deep down underneath all we're, those are Those external things are just ways that we're trying to get to that. And so, um, the reason the reason that we need this vision is because John is telling us that there's someone who is on the throne who's so much better than all those things that you can worship. It's so much better. It's why, later, listen to what David Foster Wallace says later in this speech. This is the last time I'll re- reference to this. He says this, an atheist. He says, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Now, look, the funny thing is, in Revelation 4, this vision of God, it seems like maybe he could eat you alive. Um, Or at least that these, like, four crazy living creatures that we ran into could eat you alive. Um, And I'm going to talk about more more about them in a second. All right, second point. What I want you to see, though, is what this vision shows. It does show God seated on this throne. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to pick apart like every single thing and be like, this stands for this and this stands for this and this stands for this. Because that's not really what Revelation is written for. It's a picture book of images to give, to leave you with an impression. But a couple things I want to point out. First off, the impression that we are meant to have here is that the throne room of God is where the meaning of life originates. It's the source of all beauty and light and love and worship. Verse 11, the elders are calling, you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That means that mountains and planets and bone and feather and heat and water and queso and dancing and laughter and roller coasters and all of those physics and like chemistry and everything that went into those things being able to be possible, those elders are saying that you 
on the throne are the one who thought it all up and you made it. And they all exist because you allow them to. And so we see the king, the apocalypse of the king, the unveiling of who he really is in this this light and beauty that's all around him and these amazing creatures worshiping him. And we're left with this impression of seeing the king for who he really is. And I want you to point out some of the, some of the allusions to the Old Testament that John is making to nail this home. Okay, first off, he talks about this like thunder and lightning in God's presence. That's, that's a big thing that happens in Exodus 19. You got, um, when God comes down to Mount Sinai and gives the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai is depicted as like there's this like thunderstorm that's on and it's like volcano like volcano stuff going and like earthquake and it's like this there's this event happening on Mount Sinai and there's lightning and thunder and that's what we see where God's presence is in Mount Sinai and here in the throne now have you ever been close to lightning it is terrifying I was at a worked in an all boys camp one summer and lightning struck a tree outside of our dining hall and 250 boys went silent for two seconds and then they all like freaked out but for two seconds they were silent because lightning is dumbfounding and it's coming from his throne and then I want you to see this so in Exodus 25, God gives Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Okay, the tabernacle is where, it's where God's presence is going to go all throughout um, the Old Testament with his people as they wander in the wilderness. And then when they go into the promised land, the place, they would, they would set up this tent thing called the tabernacle. And the tent had an outer area, and then it had the holy place, which was like an inner tent inside. And then inside the inner tent was the holy of holies. Okay, and God gives Moses all of this instruction. And as he's doing it, listen to what he says at the end of Exodus 25. He says, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So they're on Mount Sinai. And God said, when you make this, make it after the pattern. But if you know, like, what is the reason that a pattern exists is so that it's because it's something that's being duplicated. He's not just giving him blueprints to, to build this. He's saying this is a pattern. And what it's patterned after now, we're getting to see the real thing, the archetype, the throne room of God where his presence dwells in the heavens. And then the whole tabernacle is a, a reconstruction, a patterning after that. And so we're getting to see this revealed and unveiled. And it's incredible. And in the center of that tent, like I said, would be the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the very place where God dwelled on the mercy seat. His, he dwelled on them, and, and on either side of him were carved cherubim. And I, this is so beautiful. So we are seeing that like in full technicolor now. You see that? And then not only that, but did you notice what it says about the sea in this? All throughout the Old Testament, and really the Bible, the sea is this place of danger. Genesis 1, the the second verse of the Bible, when creation is being made, the sea is depicted as this, like, as chaos. That there was 
chaos over the, the, over the deeps. And God's spirit came over it and created out of it. But there's chaos in the sea. It's where, it's where Jonah is thrown into and almost killed. It's where Leviathan is, these sea monsters that David talks about in the Psalms. It's where, when, if you notice, when, G, when Jesus casts the demons out of the man in the New Testament, and he casts the demons out into the pigs, where do they run? They run into the sea. When, when Jesus' disciples almost die, they're on a boat in the sea, and it's stormy, and it's chaotic, and Jesus says, be still, and it's still. And what you see here, what these first century Christians get to see is that there is a sea before God and it is like glass. That chaos is completely subdued before him. He isn't. And imagine for someone whose life is as chaotic as John's and as chaotic as this church is. They are worried and concerned and their friends are dying. And they get this vision of God and he is looking over something that's typically chaotic and it is just completely under his dominion. That's the image that we're given. That all is not lost because God is on his throne. And then we get this crazy image of these four living creatures. Okay, there's creatures that like this that pop up in other parts of the Bible. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, these prophetic books. Um, they're most similar to the creatures in Ezekiel 10, and those creatures are called cherubim. And when you think of like a cherub, like it's Valentine's Day, right? Like you think of like a fat baby with diaper and wings or something. Like that's a cherub. That is not what a biblical cherub looks like. <laughs> they are like, they look like aliens. Really. They are otherworldly. And I, look, I know this is kind of an out there illustration, um, our guest speaker mentioned aliens last week, too. We're just, like, going to talk about aliens the rest of the time. At our, or if, I'm just kidding. We're not. But just imagine that, like, an alien showed up at the tower. And it's, like, it's not, like, one of the, like, green people-sized aliens with the big black eyes that we imagine. But it's, like, a force of nature that is clearly bigger and stronger than us and has more intelligence than us. And it's as tall as the tower. And it, somehow, because it can speak to us, it communicates and says, I came here because I saw the scripture verse on the tower. And I worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Don't you think you would just be like, okay, God, I knew you were big, but really? That's the impression that we're supposed to get here. These creatures, like a these flying lion kind of creature with eyes all over it, that what are they doing? They are worshiping God night and day because he is beautiful to them. He is that big. So the surprise, third point, the surprise. Did you notice how he gets into the throne room? Because here's the thing. In the Old Testament, you couldn't go into the dwelling place of God or you would die. Only one priest got to go in on one day of the year into the Holy of Holies. And he had to cleanse himself so much that they, were, they would tie a rope around his ankle in case when he went in and died, no one could go in there and get him because you would die in God's presence. So they would just pull you out with the rope. 
And here is John, and he's ushered into the throne room of God. He gets access. He doesn't have to slink in like me at the Royal and Ancient Club. He gets in. How does he get in? Verse 1. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. You know whose voice that is? We know from chapter 1, the first voice. It's Jesus' voice. The way that he gets in is that Jesus calls him in. And the reason that Jesus can call him in is what we're going to see in Revelation 5 next week. That he is presented as a lamb who is slain. That Jesus, with his death, with his perfect life and death, for, on behalf of, of sinners like me, that you and I have the opportunity to have access to God when we don't deserve it. Now, look, that's not the surprise, though. You ready for the surprise? Let me tell you the surprise. First, I'm going to illustrate it. Um, and I'm going to illustrate with this story that CBS ran a few years back. And it is about... A man named Jack Mook, who is an officer in Pittsburgh. Let me read. Generally speaking, if you're a kid growing up in Pittsburgh, like Jesse and Josh Lyle, the last place you ever want to be in is in a courtroom across the table from Detective Jack Mook. Mook is a by-the-book, no-nonsense, chew-them-up, spit-them-out, 22-year veteran of the force. For fun, he hits people. He volunteers at the Steel City Boxing Gym teaching the sport to underprivileged kids. And he really, like, if you, this guy looks like he's, like, carved from meat. He's just, like, a, like, bald, like, tough cop-looking guy. He says, most of the kids who come in the gym are street kids. Many of them have been born into poverty. And kids like 11-year-old Jesse and his 15-year-old brother Josh, long before their date in court, Jack had been working with them. He really liked these kids, and he knew the feeling was mutual. So when they just stopped showing up at the gym one day, Officer Mook went out and found the older boy. And he was, the boy says this, he was asking me about it, and I just started crying. What Mook didn't know, what no one knew until that moment, was just how bad these kids had it. They were in a foster home with foster parents who Mook says were extremely abusive and neglectful. They have had it as worse as any kid that's ever lived in the city of Pittsburgh, living conditions-wise, said Mook. And I had enough of it. So, Jack Mook took matters into his own hands. He cashed in some favors and got the kids placed in a new home. His. It's been quite an adjustment for him. He's a bachelor. (laughs) I'm in here trying to learn my culinary skills, Mook said. But that doesn't mean he's not loving it. Yeah, it's awesome. It's the best thing I ever did in my life. At least it was the best thing until the day he went to court and did one better. He adopted the boys and made them mooks. And as they leave, Jack Mook looks at the boys and says, You're a mook, all right? You happy? Good. Now you're going to go home and cut my grass. Here's a surprise. You don't just get entrance into the throne room. You get adopted. You get adopted. You get to go home with God. And here's the thing. Do you remember, if, if, if you were here two weeks ago, 
at the very end of the chapter that we just say two verses before we go into the throne room and get to see what it looks like. Two verses before that, listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 3. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on the throne. This throne that is incredible and unbelievable and beyond your imagination, Jesus says, you know what? To be with me on it. Come here with me. And that might, you might think I'm like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. This is how the, the last chapter of the Bible ends. Revelation 22, preview for where we're going. Listen to how it describes what will we be doing. Just like Mr. Mook gave his boys a job. Go cut, you're going to come live with me and you're going to cut my grass. Listen to the job we get. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. And listen to this. For the light of the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God's people will reign with him. You get to do that. That will be your job for eternity. You will share with the one who's adopted you into his family because he's good and because he loves you. See, Jesus didn't just die to save you from your sins. He died so that you could be united to his family because he loves you. He loves sinners. And so my last point, so what? Verse one, he says this at the beginning of this passage. He says, I will show you what must take place. See, God is about to give them a vision for a lot of hard things that are going to come to them. But before he gets to that and tells them about hardship, he's going to calibrate their minds and their hearts and say, but listen, I'm on my throne. And I want you to hear that tonight. That Jesus, Jesus has ushered us into his throne room so that we can have communication with God. And he, God is on his throne and he hasn't forgotten you. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to see that there is hope and that this world has meaning because one day God will subdue all the chaos in this world. This world is so chaotic and broken. Oh my goodness. He's going to subdue it and restore it. And he's made a way for you to be with him because he's gracious. So I would ask you to believe. All right, let me close and pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. And thank you for... um, your word. I pray that you would bury it deep into our hearts and that um, one day all of us would get to sing holy, holy, holy along with these creatures that we see here in this passage. We thank you for it and we pray um, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.